Hello, my name's Tom Hughes. I'm speaking to you from Cardiff, and I'm absolutely delighted today to have Professor Sarosh Irani from the Oxford Autoimmune Neurology Group, whose career I have watched with admiration and envy as he has traveled the country to help us as clinicians work out the ins and outs of autoimmune encephalitis. Sarosh, great to speak to you. How are you today? Thanks, Tom. Very kind of you to say. I'm, I'm well, thanks. That's fantastic. And I'm delighted that listening in is Amy Ross Russell, who is going to take over from me doing these podcasts. I've had a great time. Thank you, everyone. But I think Amy is going to bring something super special to these podcasts, and I'm looking forward to hearing her first broadcast in the near future. So, Sarosh, um, amazing. What a time you've had traveling the country. Um, looking back at that research that you did at the beginning when you were a registrar, how, how does it feel to have been right at the forefront of such extraordinary progress in neurological diseases? Well, it definitely feels like a real privilege. We've ridden the crest of a wave, I think, in the last few years where these diseases have become clinically really, really important. And I think not to miss clinical conditions. So understanding of the biology behind them, the antibody testing methods, etc., has become so increasingly important in, in routine clinical neurology practice that I think we've been really lucky at the, at the time this has evolved. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. So um, just I want to highlight to listeners that Sarosh and his group have put together a wonderful article for practical neurology, which is full of tables which are heading for the wall in front of my desk. So I can be reminded on a regular basis of the clinical features and the extraordinary progress that's been made. Sarosh, I was amazed to hear that in some groups of patients, autoimmune encephalitis is more common than infectious encephalitis. Is that true? Yeah, I think it's very true, actually. So in the sense that I think um, as we go further and further down the line, on a neurology ward, at least, we don't see that many cases of infective encephalitis. But I think we more and more consider these diseases and see these diseases. I wonder whether a lot of this is about diagnostic criteria and the epidemiology may have perhaps fooled us for a long while, because Uh I think by including people who have Um, a very acute onset who have um, CSF pleocytosis, you exclude a large number of the patients with autoimmune diseases. And actually the progress made in the, the, there's been some fantastic work in the infective encephalitis field, taking CSF and trying to um, agnostically sequence for bugs. But overall, as far as I understand that field, it's yielded relatively few results, typically in immunocompromised individuals. And that kind of aspiration that you're going to get a common or a new form of HSV has never really materialized. Whereas, as you well know, in this field, antibodies keep getting described year on, year out. And whilst many of them are very rare, they are overall certainly not that rare. Lovely. And you use the lovely expression that you think of them as the not-to-miss diagnoses. Is that right? Yeah, and I think that's why, you know, from a diagnostic testing capacity, only 1% of our tests, I'd say, are positive in most of these diseases. Great. Now, in the introduction, you make the point that 
the autoantibodies that we detect are considered pathogenic because they are directed against the extracellular domains of the target antigens. Could you explain that in more detail for me, please? Yeah, sure. It's a, it's a bit of a simplification, but the concept being that if the antibodies which circulate in spinal fluid can see their target in vivo, in humans, in intact cell membranes, i.e. they target extracellular domains of those proteins, it's intuitive that those are highly likely to be pathogenic versus, of course, the antibodies we've seen over the years which target GAD and Hue, many of which are now proven not to be pathogenic. So a positive negative result, if you like, in those passive transfer models. And, and it seems to correlate with the emergence of many groups showing lovely in vivo and in vitro data where the antibodies applied to certain systems models can cause features that are consistent with the patient's illness. Thank you very much indeed. Now, it all kicked off for me with NMDA encephalopathy, and I'm just going to ask people to indulge me for a few seconds when I say that Sarosh came down to Cardiff for what was our first uh, diagnosed case of NMDA encephalopathy. The patient was on ITU for 171 days, and then in the neuropsych unit for six months, and is now a qualified nurse and is married with two children. Thanks to your guidance and input, Sarosh. Do you have many cases that are imprinted on your mind that still wake you at two o'clock uh, that had autoimmune encephalitis? Yes, certainly. I mean, so first of all, thank you very much for reminding me of that case. He imprints on my mind as well and was a young man, of course, so broke the rules of NMDA at the time, which was, I think, important to realise and not under-recognise that disease in young men. Um, I think, yeah, no, certainly that these these patients are indelible on one's mind. And, and, and one of the most instructive conversations I had was with a group of neurologists who are over the age of 60, who absolutely vividly remember these cases and can describe them beautifully over the years. And of course, they didn't have a clear designation then, but it's become more and more apparent that people remember these cases. They go, they say, yes, of course. Now that's exactly what it was. And I think they do remain indelible for that reason. Great. Thank you very much. So table one is a wonderful summary of the clinical features, typical age and sex, MR scan findings, etc. It strikes me that to be confident about these diagnoses, every patient does need MR, CSF, EEG. Is that a fair assessment from your perspective? First of all, just to say thank you very much to Chris and Sophie who put that table together and they did a really excellent job on this very detailed review. Um, yes, I think, I think more and more you're right. I think that sort of triad of MRI, CSF, EEG is very helpful in these patients. Having said that, I think it's increased, having learned about what the diseases look like with the benefit of the retrospectoscope and having antibodies to, to go back and map onto phenotypes, I think we're getting better and better prospectively at giving these patients immunotherapy without many tests. Now, very rarely without any tests, but I think increasingly we can diagnose these patients before the antibody results are back. And that's, I think, very important in terms of thinking about early treatment to help them. Looking at other investigations, there are clearly uh, many patients who have an underlying tumour 
What is your preferred method for screening for tumours, particularly I'm thinking of teratomas of the ovary and thymomas? Is it CT chest, abdominal pelvis, or is it MR imaging? Yes, so our, our body radiologists say go for a CT body, essentially, as a first screening tool. I think that's perfectly reasonable in most of these patients. Um, the teratomas are tricky and do require specific thought, I think. And we've, we've certainly seen some patients in whom the teratoma can be tiny. We've certainly seen some patients in whom the teratoma is almost visible at the end of the bed, you know, who present with abdominal pain and bloating as their, as their major complaint. But in those where it's tiny, I think it's important to think about which method and also the expertise of the radiologist. We're very lucky to have a radiologist who's looked at lots of these and is very confident in calling especially the fat on some of the MR sequences and prefers MR to a um, transvaginal or certainly abdominal ultrasound. So MR pelvis is our go-to for the teratomas where we're not sure or where the CT suggests something but isn't sufficiently definitive. Thank you very much. And just, it's difficult to keep up with the number of antibodies. I'm told I can't say anti-voltage-gated potassium channel antibodies anymore. I have to say LGI-1 and Casper 2 Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So we've persuaded labs around the country to stop testing VGKC antibodies because whilst they clearly were very useful in giving us an understanding of some of the phenotypes that we later discovered as LGI-1 and Casper 2 reactivities, most of the tests, as these have become not to miss diagnoses, that 1% positivity with VGKC was much higher actually in the end and did not describe patients with clinically relevant immunotherapy responsive syndromes and occurred in a lot of um, disease controls. And so for routine clinical use, it's probably a test which actually carries more risk than benefit because um, administering immunotherapy to those patients who don't have those sorts of immunotherapy responsive diseases probably does more harm than good. So I very much like figure one where you have sort of summarised on on the back of an envelope sort of thing, the main features of the uh, autoantibody syndromes, and you've put them in order of decreasing frequency. Sort of from the end of the bed, what are the things that make you think, "Uh oh, this is an autoimmune encephalitis? And what are the things that make you think this is probably not autoimmune as a starter for 10 when you first see them? It's a very good question. I think it's the degree of confusion i think that helps in these people and then and then i think the fact that they could fit into certain categories so i often don't think of this as a syndrome anymore really because actually a lot of these patients don't have itis that's demonstrable i think that antibodies cause a down regulation almost like a pharmacological effect at the target antigen many of these can present over weeks months the iglon 5 syndrome certainly over years and so I actually think this is such a heterogeneous bunch that we're thinking of individual syndromes within it when we're seeing patients. And I think it's these individual nuances which give you the clue to think, go ahead. Of course, that doesn't tackle the seronegative patients, which I think are still a really difficult group to diagnose and difficult group to get right in terms of treatments. But once you can label an individual with an antigen or an an antibody targeting an antigen, I think that becomes really helpful in the way you think about what the syndrome is. So 
whilst I, I completely agree with you, Chris's figure is really lovely. I think it is about the nuances that subdivide these syndromes that kind of gives us the flavour for what to pick on, on at the bedside. Nice. Yes, I, I like that. So I loved your expression, transdiagnostic presentations. And I think readers will be interested to read that as a rule of thumb, autoimmune encephalitis, if the psychiatric features are the presenting feature, they are soon accompanied by other more traditional neurological abnormalities. Have I got that right? Yeah, I think that's right. For the for the term, I have to thank um, my psychiatry colleagues, so Adam Aldawani in particular, also Belinda Lennox and David Okai, who are two of the newest psychiatrists I've worked with, because this is a term used in psychiatry circles quite a lot, but I only came across it relatively late. The concept being, of course, in, in, in NMDA receptor antibody encephalitis in particular, that the patients present with features which are traditionally separate categories in primary psychiatric diseases. So they often present with behavior overlapping with psychosis, overlapping with mood, overlapping with catatonia. And it's that transdiagnostic nature of that presentation that gives a, gives a good clue to being NMDA receptor antibody encephalitis. And so that's, that's where that specifically arose in, in my head, at least. Wonderful. It's amazing how a single term can help us uh, understand conditions uh, with greater insight. And on that theme, I love the idea that in systemic lupus erythematosus, antibodies show intrinsic stickiness. Could you explain that one for us? <laughs> um, I tried to simplify what was a very lovely paper by um, James Varley, who's now a registrar in London. So um, the concept has been for a long time that neuropsychiatric lupus is NMDA receptor antibody mediated. And there are a series of papers to describe this. What those authors do on the whole is they use a small peptide, which, which is derived from the extracellular domain of the NMDA receptor. So in theory, it fulfills this needing to target extracellular domain concept to be pathogenic. However, when you take that peptide and you do a simple peptide ELISA with it, admittedly, the lupus patients bind much better to that peptide than healthy controls. But the control that we couldn't find in any of the literature was to remove the peptide and just say, do the lupus sera stick to the plate, the ELISA plate itself, the plastic? And they did. And in fact, the correlation between the two, James showed, was so convincing um, that really all their reactivity to that peptide, the apparent reactivity to that peptide was better explained by the reactivity to the plastic than anything. So at least in our hands, we can't show that those patients have target specific antibodies. And I think this field would be really interesting. And um, David Hunt in Edinburgh is working on um, cytokine and cytokine pathways, which might better explain some of the lupus neuropsychiatric complications. So watch, watch his space. Thank you very much indeed. So moving on, I was struck by your comment regarding cognition in NMDA encephalopathy, that as a rule, patients don't remember being ill. And um, I now realise that is a, a feature of the patients I've seen. What, why, why can't they remember it? What, what's the mechanism, do you think? It's a very good question. I think I'd have to ask one of my cognitive colleagues about a detailed mechanism, but NMDA glutamate certainly he heavily implicated in 
long-term potentiation and learning and memory. And what they tend to forget is a week or so before their illness and then the the often the acute, really fulminant part of their hospital stay. And they often then remember the part of their hospital stay as they start to leave um, the ward. So it very much feels like an anterograde memory loss for that period of their acute illness. Um, for more about the pathophysiology, maybe I'll ask a colleague and get back to you. <laughs> Great. Um, so moving on to the seizures, and I think people are familiar with fasciobrachial dystonic seizures in LGI-1 antibody encephalitis. I was struck by your comment about paroxysmal dizziness. And you suggest that paroxysmal dizziness can be an ictal feature. Have I got that right? And are there any clues that their dizziness is ictal? Yes. So this is something described by colleagues um, in the US. And since we heard the description, certainly interviewing our patients specifically for this, it does seem to be prevalent in the LGI-1 patients. So what they typically describe is suddenly feeling very dizzy, but often with something else, often a tingle, which may be more typical of a sensory aura, or a feeling that they're not quite part of the world, so something a little bit more limbic in terms of their semiology. And so they do have few other things associated with it, but it's this intense dizziness that lasts just a few seconds and is highly repetitive, so highly stereotyped, that are really the two clues to that. And rarely do they have it in isolation. Um, in fact, a patient I just saw yesterday who has LGI-1 antibody encephalitis describes very nicely that those episodes occur. And also around those episodes, he was dropping cups, he was falling over, which are clearly the fasciobrachial dystonic seizures. And then his wife will say, once in a while, his lips will smack as well. So it's the several semiologies in an individual that I think is the, the hallmark of that illness. Now, one thing that's always interested me is when we do epilepsy clinics or when we see patients with epilepsy, should they all have their antibodies tested just in case? And from what I've read, you think there's limited reason to screen everybody for these antibodies. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's correct. So um, we've done a study, the, um, it, it was a Ronan uh, McGinty, who's a neurology registrar now in, in Liverpool, and Adam Handel, who's just a new consultant in Oxford, put together a study where they showed that if you pick the patients with antibodies from a cohort of new onset seizures, and you then go back and ask what were the features that predicted that, actually, it's pretty much the features that you would expect of an autoimmune encephalitis, except typically milder. So I think it's this useful signposting of patients into an epilepsy clinic can make you think of this, but typically only send the antibodies when you have at least one other clue, whether it's the semiology, um, of course, the MR appearances sometimes will give you a clue, but the frequency and the semiology, I think, are probably the two clues to them having an antibody-mediated condition. So we've made the diagnosis, we've excluded the things that might catch us out, which you've listed. And then I think you're suggesting that early immunotherapy improves outcome. Do you think we can treat these now without the antibody result? And what is your preferred method of treatment first line? 
Yeah, I do. I think we can treat most of these people without the antibody result. We'll get it wrong sometimes, but I think you do limited harm in that first week or two. And I think you can do a lot of benefit. Um, so I think it's a risk worth taking in that minority. Of course, we'd like to test antibodies quicker and we're working on ways to do that. But in the interim, I think we, we are left with clinical acumen. Those three tests you mentioned are, are very helpful. And usually you can get those three tests in 24 hours. So it's quite a quick decision-making process. I would nearly always start with high-dose steroids. Um, in fact, I can't think of someone in whom I haven't recently. I think there are some textbook queries about that with ideas about inducing psychosis and psychiatric features in particular. In our experience, that's vanishingly rare. Um, and in fact, I think massively overstated in the textbooks. It clearly does happen, but I think it's very unusual. So, and if it happens, we manage it with um, the help of our neuropsychiatrists and we manage it with um, antipsychotics and benzodiazepines. So I think really steroids are number one. And then quite quickly, my preference is to progress to plasma exchange wherever possible over IVIG. Um, and that's largely anecdotal observations from having seen some patients who received IVIG with a relatively limited benefit um, and really thinking through the, the, the biology should be that of IgG removal helping these patients if you believe that from your very first question that the antibodies are directly pathogenic. And it seems to be pretty successful. We're quite lucky to have a unit that can do it, can do plasma exchange peripherally. Um, and so that's also very exciting and reduces the typical complications of needing a long line. And the final thing to say on that topic is that there are some trials beginning now where um, companies have developed molecules which can deplete IgG peripherally, um, can be given subcutaneously, so potentially at home, um, and do not need plasma exchange with its potential complications. So whilst the complications of plasma exchange are, far, are significantly reduced with this peripheral um, exchanging, um, they're still not absent. And these new drugs may be really helpful in trying to treat these patients with an even lower side effect profile. Thank you very much. Table two summarizes wonderfully the various treatments. And in your second line therapy, we have mycophenolate, azathioprine, rituximab, and cyclophosphamide. Just choosing one of them, do you think azathioprine is the sort of old guard immunotherapy that is worth revisiting a bit more, particularly if we know their metabolizer status, uh, their TPMT level? Is it underrated or is it on the way out, do you think? I think the answer is that the very few patients on whom we've used it in haven't had wonderful results. The same is probably true for mycophenolate. We're just studying it at the moment, formally, but the same is probably true for mycophenolate. And the old studies, at least in myasthenia, suggest that azathioprine can take up to nine months to start to have a clear clinical effect. So if that's true, I think we should be reaching for um, some of the more modern therapies that can help with trying to achieve a induction almost, almost like a chemotherapy. So I always think of rituximab where I can get it. And our pharmacy are fantastic about offering it for patients that need it as a, as a next line therapy. And it's clearly, um, it's clearly now, um, we've persuaded NHS England that it should be part of a rituximab standardized protocol. And that's, that's now available. And we've now used it in about 20 of our LGI1 and CASPER2 patients. And some have seen really remarkable responses 
And I think it's about half-half, and we're going to sort of analyse that properly now. But rituximab would be my go-to if I had a chance. And of course, it makes nice biological sense, and I think overall has a lower complication rate than, for example, cyclophosphamide. Thank you very much. Rituximab uh, is paving the way, I think, in many areas. So I just wanted to go back to one thing I forgot to quiz you about. In Table 1, in the LGI-1 uh, antibody, you suggested at two years, a third are fully recovered, a third are independent, and a third are severely disabled or dead. That really struck me that, um, that the gravity of the condition. Is, is that your clinical experience still? I actually think that that severely might have, might have sneaked in there erroneously. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> that, that word severely, I don't think is fair to be there. Okay, but they can be disabled, so they so they might be dependent. Yeah. Well, I think I think the the um, the LGI one patients are really interesting in the sense that they um, are always said to have had a really really good outcome, and I think they do on the whole have a good outcome. But actually, when they're followed up sequentially, when they're followed up long term very few of them get back to normal function. They might read a, reach, reach a modified ranking score of one or zero in many studies. Very few of them are truly asymptomatic when you go through things with them. They suffer a number of complications, but actually the most surprising one that dis disables them most, I think, is fatigue. They have a really, really striking level of fatigue. Nearly everyone that comes back to clinic after a year says, the main thing that stops me functioning normally is, is marked fatigue. Um, and, and I think that's an area for further work in these patients to optimise optimize outcomes. Thank you very much indeed. So moving on to some of the molecular insights, could you explain why the autoantigen-specific B cells are probably first established peripherally before migrating into the CNS, which leads to a 50-fold higher concentration of antibodies in the serum than in the CSF. That seems improbable to me. Could you explain that? Sure. So um, when you measure the antibody levels and you just do a very simple measure of their concentration, they're almost always higher in the serum than the CSF by, as you say, several fold, anything between 10 and a couple of hundred even. So the absolute concentration of antibody is, um, is, is high in the periphery. But if you then normalize for the total amount of IgG, because you have so much more total IgG in the periphery than the CSF, the amount of the total immunoglobulin that's comprised by your antigen-specific population is higher in the CSF than the serum, sometimes essentially regarded as intrathecal synthesis in these diseases. Now, to me, it probably does make biological sense because if most of these are CNS-restricted antigens, we know from the work of Medawar many, many years ago that if you take a CNS, a foreign antigen, you implant it in the brain, overall, you're not going to get an immune response to that antigen. Whereas if you inject it into the brain and then also immunize your periphery, you'll get a large response to that CNS location of the antigen. So our working model for these diseases is that 
CNS antigens escape and various people have now um, very beautifully described that the um, cervical lymph nodes drain the CNS in, in, in mammals. And so our hypothesis is that this CNS drainage goes to deep cervical lymph nodes. It evokes a peripheral systemic response, which generates that really high serum titer of antibody. And then the key triggering factor for these diseases is the migration of the B cells back into the CNS. And how that happens, I think, is still very unclear. But it's clear, it, in, in my view, it's clear it does happen because people have gone into the CSF and tried to ask what fraction of the CSF B cells are antigen specific. And they find remarkably high numbers, between 10 and 50%. Thank you very much indeed. Now, a common clinical situation is we think we've treated case of herpes simplex beautifully and with adequate acyclovir, etc. Then a few weeks later, the patient turns up with what appears to be a relapse, but their PCR is negative. I think some of these are antibody-mediated syndromes. Is that right? Yeah, you're planting me beautifully with sequential questions here, because I think this is the example where you destroy neurons in your CNS, antigen spills out, and then you evoke a peripheral response to those antigens. And so that might nicely fit with the kind of lag you see between exactly what you described, HSV, followed by a period of recovery, followed by a relapse, which is autoimmune, at which time the CSF PCR is now negative. And for me, that kind of biphasic model is really well um, explained by this idea that the antigen is drained to your cervical lymph nodes and then you've raised an antibody response which has to migrate back into your central nervous system. I think that's a really nice example of where that biology makes sense. Great. Well, Sarosh, I feel educated, inspired and motivated, but also humbled by an absolutely wonderful paper and a great discussion. Thank you so much for giving us your time. On behalf of all the listeners, uh, thank you for the time you've given this condition and we look forward to at least annual updates for practical neurology of the advances in autoimmune encephalitides. Thank you. All the best. Sounds great, Tom. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye.